take something else. And then there were the dumb people like me who thought we could stick it out. I mean, after all, it was just the next class I had taken the first two in high school. Uh, that was not a good idea for many reasons. But nevertheless, God in his great mercy enabled me to derive some benefit from my experience in multivariable calculus, specifically in two ways. In fact, these are ways in which he helped me to understand Jesus' parables. So, well, the kids are all gone to their classes now, but tell your kids that just because something doesn't seem immediately relevant to your life in class, it may actually end up helping out somewhere down the road. <clears throat> the first has to do with understanding the very nature of Jesus' parables. This has nothing to do with calculus, but there's a little link that I like. Now, let me ask, because we do have engineers here in the room and math majors and so forth. Who can tell me what a hyperbolic paraboloid is? It's a quadric surface, one of the six quadric surfaces. Come on, people. Hyperbolic paraboloid. It's a hyperbola on one axis, parabola on the other two. Can't believe I remember that. Let me help you a lot. Chris, uh, can, can you and, and uh, Caroline come up and help uh, people to understand, uh, maybe in some cases remember what a hyperbolic paraboloid is? You just come, uh, come up and pass those out to everybody. Uh, a hyperbolic paraboloid is a Pringle, um, or a, a Pringle, a saddle. It looks like a Pringle. This is the only reason I remember hyperbolic paraboloids is because they look like Pringles. This is one of the few places where there was like a connection to my own awareness of, of the world around me. And as I said, a hyperbolic paraboloid uh, is a three-dimensional quadric surface with uh, uh, two axes defined by parabolas and one defined by hyperbola. And that got me thinking, you know, in English class, I learned about all of these figures of speech, one of which is hyperbole. Anybody who is good at English, all you engineers can just shut up and think about math for a moment. Any of you like me who are, who are more on the English side, tell me what a hyperbole is. It's an exaggeration, right? You may hear people say it's an over-exaggeration. Thank you. There is no such thing as an over-exaggeration. Exaggeration is an exaggeration. ultimately excised from all conversation. But a hyperbole is where you are using extreme language to basically for, for effect, right? Jesus, being a good teacher, used all kinds of literary conventions. Is this thing on? It probably shouldn't be. Oh, really? Okay, well, then we'll use this. Okay, great. All right. <clears throat> Jesus, being a good teacher... Used all kinds. Yeah, how are the Pringles, Brent? Good? Good. Yeah. I, I find with something that, that fatty, I need like some coffee, something hot to cut through. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have more later if you want seconds. Jesus used all kinds of different figurative language. And one of the, one of the ways in which he communicated that was uh, not unique to him, but it was kind of his signature, was the use of parables. And so here in Mark's Gospel... At the beginning of chapter 4, uh, we have Jesus speaking in parables. Now, Mark, as you, as you may remember from what we've studied so far, Mark is kind of the action-packed 
gospel. Mark, Mark kind of uh, works like, like a comic book movie in that you get quick flashes of action from this point to that point to that point to that point. You don't have Jesus speaking as much in Mark's gospel as you do, for example, in Matthew's gospel, where it seems like he's just never going to shut up. In, in Matthew's gospel, he tells a whole ton of parables. In Mark, you only get a couple, but, but all of, the, all of the, uh, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have, this, have him starting off with this parable of the sower. And it goes like this. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. That's the Sea of Galilee up in the north. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he had to get into a boat and sit in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. Now, he taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching, he said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even a 100 times. And Jesus said, he who has ears to hear had better listen. You can just see these thousands of people doing that doggy head tilt thing like, huh? What, what, what are you talking about? And among the people saying, huh? What are you talking about? Were his disciples. Because the next thing we read is that when he's alone... The twelve and the others who were hanging around close to him came and, and said, um, so what's with the parables? Because this doesn't make any sense. And he says, you know, actually, the kingdom of God's been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is, is just parables. It's riddles. And this is, as, as I said, this is a style of teaching that Jesus uses time and time again. And he uses this to communicate something about the kingdom. Let me skip the bit that comes right after this and, and give you Jesus' interpretation. Verse 13, where Jesus says, don't, don't you understand the parable? I mean, if, you're, if you're not going to get this one, you're really not going to get any of them. This is like junior level intro parables. Look, the farmer sows the word. And some people, they're like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once they receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And Then there are others, like seeds sown among the thorns, who hear the word and then the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke out the word, making it unfruitful. But then there are those like the seed sown on good soil who hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. See, what Jesus is teaching about here is the kingdom. You recall at the very beginning, if you, if you were to take, if you were to say, what was Jesus' message? What was the core thing that Jesus had to say when he shows up? 
what are we told in Mark? He says, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has shown up. It's on the doorstep. It's right here. And now Jesus says, I'm going to teach you about the kingdom. And he teaches about the kingdom by talking about this person going out to sow. What do we know about the character in this parable? He is an idiot. I mean, seriously, if you're a farmer and you have to save your seed corn all year long, it's getting close to this time for sowing and your, your family's hungry, but you've got you to gotta save this seed because you have to plant it so you can have more. What kind of fool are you if when it comes time to sow, you go out and you waste three quarters of it, Right? You know, on the cover of your bulletin is one of these gazillion memes on the American Gothic painting, the famous 1930 painting. This was, was, was uh, done by somebody who, you know, people argue about whether he was being satirical or he was honoring our uh, tradition of, of, of stolid uh, farm life. But the point is he, he, he produced this at a time where the population, the, the percentage of the American uh, workforce involved in agriculture was very quickly going from being a majority to the point today where only 2% of Americans are working in agriculture, and I think half of them work for the ag department or work lobbying the ag department. But Jesus is teaching this by the lake up in Galilee, which is kind of the, the breadbasket of the area. People there would have known that no farmer is going to take three-quarters of his seed and waste it by throwing it places that it's not going to do any good. They know he's not going to throw it among the thorns because it's going to get choked out. They know he's not going to throw it on the rocky soil because it's just going to come up and it'll be like a newspaper fire and then it'll be it. And they know that he is not going to take it and dump it on the ground. Nevertheless, it seems so often when people look at passages in the Gospels where Jesus is talking about parables, they say, oh, well, we need to take this and figure out what the moral of the story is. And so, well, therefore, what we have to do is when we go out, we should, like, waste three-quarters of our efforts. That would be a good idea. When, when, what we should do when we go out to plant bulbs in the garden, we should put a whole bunch of them, like, just under a rock. That would be a good idea. No, we're not supposed to do that at all. That's not what Jesus is doing here. What Jesus is doing here is he's talking about the way God operates. He's talking about the kingdom of God and the way God's economy is completely different from ours. And God, unlike us, doesn't have to be that stingy. Because God, unlike us, is lavish and prodigal and excessive and extravagant. And he can spread his love everywhere. And he can spread his word everywhere, even though it's not going to bear fruit everywhere. This is the way that God works. And the reason when we, when we hear this story, we go, what, what? That, wait, that doesn't even make sense, is because it's so different from the way that we work. We're supposed to not get it right away. We're supposed to say that, wait, that's, there's something strange. There's something different about that. We're not supposed to say, oh, I guess I really need to sort of conform myself to this. No, you, you don't. There's another, one of my favorite 
parable. It's the parable of the, the workers in the vineyard. This doesn't even show up in Mark's gospel, but uh, Jesus tells a story where the, this guy goes out to basically goes by Home Depot in the morning and, and picks up a bunch of guys to go out and work. And, and then he goes back out later on in the morning and picks some guys up and, to go to work. And, you know, the first guys he picked up, he said, look, I'll pay you a day's wage. They say, great, we're fine. And he does it again and again. And, and then to the point where he basically like pulls into the parking lot at like five, gets these guys to go out and work. They barely get any work done. And then it's quitting time. And then he goes to pay them all. And the people that showed up last, the people who had barely done any work, he pays them a full day's wage. And then the next people come that he'd hired at three in the afternoon, and they get a full day's wage. So when, at the end, when the people who had been working all day, who, who, who were there you know, at, at dawn, when, when they show up, they're thinking, oh, this is great. I mean, if they're all getting paid a full day's wage. We should, we should really make some bank here, and he pays them a full day's wage. And they're like, what? what, what that guy, he worked for an hour, and he got a full day's wage. And I, I worked all day. I worked through the heat of the day. And I'm only getting, pay, getting paid the same as him. What, what, what's, what's up with that? Andrew says, look, we had a deal. I mean, I, you worked a day, I paid you a day's wage. It's, it's fair. Like, yeah, but he, he didn't work as long as I did. Yeah, I know. It's my money. I can do with it what I want to. I mean, you, you, do you have a problem with me being generous? Look, I, I, I paid you what I owed you. Take your money and go. And sometimes people will take that as like a parable that means you need to have a certain minimum wage or living wage or something. No, because what's going to happen the next morning when the guy shows up to hire people to work? Who's going to, to get in his van at 6 in the morning? Precisely nobody. They'll be like, look, I'll be here at five when you come back. Nobody's going to be able to sustain a business working like that. And everybody knows that. So when they hear that, they're like, well, Jesus, what you're saying doesn't make any sense. What? what, what huh? Well, that's the point. That's why God works. God, God gives His grace so lavishly that it doesn't matter if you showed up at the beginning or if you showed up right at the end. That God, you, you still get in. You still, you still get my love and grace and mercy. It's not a matter of what you can do for me. It's a matter of what I've done for you. And so here with the parable of the sower, you know, the, Jesus says, look, God is the one who sows the word, and he sows it in ways that seem completely indiscriminate to you. And then he links in with this other thing that helped me understand calculus class. When he says, you know, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. This is verse 11. But to those on the outside, everything's said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding, lest they turn and be forgiven. Now, right here, Jesus is quoting a passage out of Isaiah. You may have heard this if you've ever been to somebody's ordination. This passage usually gets read. This is the one where... Isaiah is there in the throne room and he sees God in all his glory and he says, oh, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he hears the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And I hear that, I'm always thinking, I'd be like, here am I, send somebody else. He says, here am I, send me. And then God says, okay, so go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused 
Make their ears dull and close their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, turn and be healed. Isaiah's like, what? okay, so my job is to go and speak to them, and they're not going to understand, they're not going to hear, they're not going to believe, and they're going to reject that. Um, how long do I have to do this? Or, as we read in Scripture, then I said, for how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, till Yahweh sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And even though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But just as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump, the remnant in the land. And Isaiah is not the only prophet who had this experience where God gives them a message and they're supposed to bring it to the people and the people are not going to hear it gladly. The people are not going to understand it. The people are going to reject it. And in some cases, the people are going to violently rebel against the person who has this message from God. I think Jesus in part is saying, I'm, look, I'm right in the middle of this stream of God's working through his prophets, where he gives them unpopular things to say that people aren't going to get. But here's the thing. It's, it's not God's fault that people don't get it. See, the, When I started off as a college student, it was the same time my teacher, Tom Garrity, started as a math professor at the college level. He had landed a job he said he had applied to 200, over 200 schools, and he finally landed a gig teaching. This was his first year teaching, and it was my first year as a student at the college level. One of us was well-suited to being in that classroom in the place where he was, and he was great. I mean, he, some of you had this with teachers where maybe in the back of the notebook you had like the quote board, like where you take things that the teacher said that would be really funny if you took it out of context. And you did. Like, his quote board was like three pages long. Uh, he, he used to tell these, he'd have all these stories. They usually involved cats in serious danger of some sort. Um, he was so energetic and so dynamic and, and, and such a, a charismatic person, and he was always available to help. And I did not often understand what he was trying to teach me. I worked so hard, I, I just barely scraped by, I think, with a C-plus in that class. I might have gotten a B minus. But that wasn't his fault. It wasn't his fault that I didn't get it. And in the same way, if, if Jesus is saying, te- teaching something about his kingdom and people aren't getting it, if God has something to convey that's true and people aren't understanding it, that's not God's fault. What it means is that we have that much more to learn. See, there are things that I could do as a freshman in college with regard to calculus that I certainly could not do now. I, I could turn that page upside down and it would make just as much sense to me as it did right side up. My, my kids, when they bring their math homework, they'll, they'll ask me something. I, I don't know. At one point I could do that. At one point I could understand it. But I, but I, I don't I don't hang out there. And so what, bear, what little I could understand, what little I could do, I can't do anymore. But I have a suspicion that if I had gone back and maybe taken that class a second time, and then if I'd taken it again, 
Maybe if I had read and reread my calculus textbook, maybe if I'd even memorized parts of it and thought about it while I was standing in line in the dining hall, maybe if I got together instead of getting in my study group, and I feel bad, I still feel bad for that. There were like a couple people in my study group who really knew what they were doing that were just carrying the rest of us along. But like, what if I had gotten together with a bunch of people who really wanted to learn calculus, really wanted to get it? Maybe more and more I would have understood it. Maybe more and more I would have found it making sense to me. It's like that with the parables. It's like that with Jesus. I mean, I've even noticed this when I spend some time, if I spend more time reading Paul or, or reading one of the prophets and then I go back and start reading Jesus, it just, it, it always seems just there's, there's something there that's different, that's, that's not clicking the same way that it did. And it takes me time to get back into thinking the way that Matthew is thinking or Mark is thinking or Luke or John is thinking as they're telling the story. It makes more sense the more time I spend with it and the more I open myself up to to being willing to see things from God's point of view, not mine. But it starts. It starts by recognizing that the parables are a type of stylized speech. The parables are not supposed to be a little moral story that you follow. The parables are the way that Jesus talks about how radically different the kingdom is from everything that we do and think, every way that we operate. And God will, through his word, bear fruit. God alone knows what soil is good. And that fruit, boy, it'll produce a crop 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. That's God's work. Let's pray. Lord, I pray as we read these parables, as we hear the things that Jesus has to say, that we would be people who, who can learn to dance to your beat. Lord, we confess that at first we, we hear these things, they don't make sense. We see them, but we don't really see. We, we hear things, we don't really get it. I pray you would give us the grace to listen humbly to your word. I pray that by your spirit you would teach us, that you would open our eyes to see the wonderful things that you have to give to us in your word. I pray that when we encounter things that are difficult to understand, that our first instinct would not be to blame you or to demand that you make sense to us, but that instead we would say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to hear, Lord, help me to understand. Give us an attitude of humility and gratitude to the word that you give us. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.